Hello, listeners of Talking Serverless. It's me again, Josh Proto, one of your co-hosts. And today I am joined by Goiko. And Goiko is a partner at Nuri Consulting, uh, author of Running Serverless, and mastermind of Video Puppet and MindMap. Uh, Goiko, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on Talking Serverless and sort of let me pick your brain on some things. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and thanks for such a lovely introduction. You're very, very welcome. Now, I'd like to begin just sort of how I always, always enjoy beginning. And as I'd love to hear a little bit more about your just sort of your journey as a developer, as someone interested in agile development, and also include, if you could, a little bit about, you know, how did you end up writing, running serverless and getting involved in the serverless space? So uh, as a developer, I've been always interested in tinkering with lots and lots of different things. When I started making money from programming, you kind of had to know your way around system admin as well. Um, and you were expected just by the virtue of delivering a software to somebody to also clean their email when it gets stuck and set up servers and, and wire everything up. So I used to do a lot of Linux admin as well. I used to kind of uh, do development. And uh, over time, I've realized I can't really be good at both. And I wanted to focus on one thing, and I kind of made the decision to focus on software development, not on admin. And um, it's a it's a funny thing because with serverless, especially um, some you know twenty two years later, um, in fact, we're getting to the point where it's almost zero operations. Um, and I, I still enjoy doing a bit of system admin now and then. But one of the biggest benefits for me using serverless technologies is not to have to worry about the administrative or the operation side of things. It kind of reduces my time to market for, for features. Um, you've mentioned kind of mind map and video puppet. At the moment, I'm working on two products. One is a collaborative mind mapping tool that's used by millions of school children worldwide. We've been uh, writing it since 2013. And um, th that's a relatively stable product. It's been around for a while. It doesn't change that much. Um, and um, it's all running in AWS Lambda. It, um, we fully migrated it to AWS Lambda in 2017. So we were one of the early production adopters of Lambda. I don't know many more people that were fully production, like 100% on Lambda back then. Um, the other one is a... Um, Interesting thing that's still in beta, I expect uh, it will get fully launched in about a month or two months. That's allowing developers uh, and, and techies to edit videos much faster than with traditional editing tools. So it will allow you to convert a markdown into narrated video using all sorts of wizardry to generate a lifelike sounding voice from the text people put in. And it actually came out as a result of um, some uh, dev demo videos that two colleagues and I were doing for a serverless toolkit that we released in 2016. And we couldn't keep the videos up to date easily. So kind of I decided to um, write my own thing that keeps videos up to date. And it does basically source code controlled videos. Um, so my, my journey as a developer started, I, I don't know how far you want to go, but kind of my, my father bought a Commodore 64 for himself when I was six years old, and my mother would kill him if he had told her that he bought a computer for himself. So um, he had to explain it as that he bought it for me, but because he bought it for himself to tinker with it, I was the only kid in the neighborhood that didn't have a cassette player or, or a disk drive connected to the Commodore. So all I had was this wonderful thing that's supposed to be mine and um, uh, like a really, really thick, I don't even remember how thick it was. Maybe I was a kid. So, you know, compared to my, my hand, things were thicker. Manual fully in German. I didn't speak a word of German with listings in basic and, and uh, pick and poke commands that would make the machine go vroom or you know, show some colors on the screen. So I started being interested in programming before I started going to school properly. And, and before I started being able to write properly, I started doing 
some kind of pick and poke copy paste software development, which you know, if you look at this, like that's what most people do on Stack Overflow these days anyway. So, you know, I was doing Stack Overflow development back then without Stack Overflow. Um, I started professionally making money from development about 21, 22 years ago. And um, I got interested, you mentioned Agile. I was um, in England from 2005, um, somehow got involved with kind of the community of people who were really interested in Agile development not necessarily just the first cycle of it, that was uh, late 90s, early 2000, but I was probably in the second cycle of that. And um, I really was fascinated by um, being able to develop stuff a lot more productively than kind of with a very heavy, heavy, heavy process. Um, one of my interests uh, for that was test automation around them because I worked with a company that had, I think, a few hundred database developers and they were all testing stuff manually because apparently you couldn't automate any of that, which was, of course, ridiculous. So um, I, I started writing a way for people to automate database tests easier. Back then, fitness was kind of the agile testing tool that was in, in fashion. And I wrote a fitness plugin that allowed people to very easily test databases. Um, and kind of from there, things just took off. It turned out that lots of other companies had similar problems. Lots of banks had problems with automated testing of databases. And, and in London, banks have too much money and it's just a shame not to work for them. So then I started working as a consultant on kind of a mix of development, agile testing, a bit of process, a bit of other things. Um, then I got interested in product management a lot because I started building my own products. Um, so I have a mix of these interests and passions that I really look at like a spiral for you know, a couple of months. I'll be more interested in product management and I'll learn more about that than for a couple of months. I'll be more interested in testing. And, I, and these things feed off each other because um, the better I am at testing software, the more higher quality software I can produce, so the better products I can build. And then I can be interested in product management so I can figure out what, how to build better products. And then my bottleneck moves to my development skills so I learn how to be a better developer. And then the bottleneck moves to kind of my testing skills. And it goes around, around, around. Um, and that, I've been very, very lucky, basically, to work for myself for the last 13 years, 14 years. So I get to choose what I do. I work as a, a part of a four-person consulting company where pretty much everybody chooses what they'd like to do. And um, we keep it very informal. But even having said that, because of my partners and because of the work I've put in, um, we kind of are a reasonably well-known consultancy without the, within the Agile space. Um, so that, that work's taken me to conferences worldwide and I've met a bunch of people. And I, I, I don't really know how I came across uh, Serverless Solanda, probably hearing about it at some conference and just fitting at, at the right moment for us. In 2016, this uh, mind mapping tool we built um, we were running into the limitations of our current architecture and we wanted to um, kind of experiment a bit with some other things. The original prompt for us being interested in uh, Lambda was I had what I thought was a brilliant feature idea for uh, connecting mind maps with the Wikimedia knowledge graph. So my brilliant idea was that if people wanted to do research uh, on a topic while writing about it in a mind map, why not just bring it all into the same interface? So I thought it's kind of a wonderful idea. I proposed it to my business partner. There's only two of us working on mind map. And he said that that was a really stupid idea. And I wanted to prove him wrong. 
So rather than um, argue about, you know, whether it's a good idea or not, they thought, well, I'll just build it and release it into production and measure the effects of that and I'll prove him wrong. But because we were already running at the limits of what our, our system could do in the current architecture and he was insisting that they don't pollute any of the current code with that, I decided to build the integration on Lambda because kind of it was auto-scaling and I could tinker with that. So I, I built the integration in Lambda. It took me a couple of days. I launched it and hoping to prove that I will be absolutely right. I've proven that he was actually right. Nobody used the feature and it was pointless. But um, it was easy to throw the Lambdas away at least. And um, that experience gave us an interesting option to solve our architectural problems. So somewhere in 2016, we started gradually migrating things to Lambda, and by February 2017, that was done. And it was auto-scaling, it was um, self-managed, and I think that aspect of serverless is the one that appeals to me the most, this whole auto-scaling, self-managed thing. With MindMob, there's only two of us, and we do everything from uh, product demos, pre-sales, to um, selling it, to developing it, to supporting it, to managing everything. And if I need to spend time dealing with operational issues, or if I need to spend time dealing with uh, system administration, then I'm not spending time on something that's a lot more important. and um, like I said, I, you know, I, I, a long time ago, I even knew how to do system admin. Um, but I, I don't think that's where my value is in, in this thing. And being able to focus on value add and, and just spend time, um, building real value and delivering real value through, through what we do instead of doing something that kind of is a commodity. And, um, is, is really, really important because we get to invest our time better. And again, you know, that's not even the only thing I do. I, I do a lot, bunch of other things as well. So being able to just keep them running without worrying about it is, is really, really important. I think for me, the penny really dropped how valuable this thing is with the, um, heart bleed and what was the second one? something sledge or something hammer, the second vulnerability in the Intel processor that was discovered. So when the first one was discovered, everybody wrote about it. It was in all the news. So suddenly people became aware about vulnerabilities in, in CPUs and especially kind of running it on a, on a shared environment. When the second one was discovered, it was during August, I think. And I remember waking up and drinking coffee and looking what came in overnight. Uh, the, the tool has customers all over the world. So we had somebody, I think, actually from your time zone, where you are much later than we are. And during night, they discovered this vulnerability and a concerned IT admin of one of our clients wrote us an email saying, we need to know how you're solving this. We need to you know your mitigation plan. We need to make sure that our data is protected and that, you know, our processes are protected from this. And I'm drinking my coffee in the morning, trying to wake up and figure out what it is. And I copy and paste the uh, CV code for, for this thing he told me about. And the first result on Google was that AWS Lambda was already patched. So for me, that, that was really when the penny dropped and I realized this is uh, like massively, massively, massively more valuable than just compute on demand and, and pay for every 100 milliseconds or whatever they were selling it back then. Because somebody took uh, this whole operational thing that I usually had to deal with working with containers or working with uh, servers or working with even virtualized environments and um, kind of deal with that. Somebody dealt with this for me. I, I don't know if that makes sense um, or if I'm kind of answering it totally wrong. No, I think you answered um, you answered the question perfectly, and I think the best and most elegant job I think of really being able to capture and describe like the overall value of of serverless, or at least talk of the many many different points of you know being able to reduce a level of operational overhead to a point to where you can actually add the most value that you have. 
as uh, as just sort of like the individual asset, which uh, when you have, you know, experience in just sort of like the managing methodologies and testing, as well as, you know, being able to see certain pain points and have like an entrepreneurial mindset to things, um, the less time you have to spend troubleshooting the operations, um, overall, the better that your the better your product will be. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think we have a very specific constraint. Again, there's only two of us working on this product. And um, we are able to compete with companies that are several orders of magnitude larger and, and much better funded because we can actually focus on the things that really matter. I think in lots of large organizations, if you look at just the amount of wasted energy on, on stupid stuff that people should not even be doing in the first place is staggering. I, I, it's, it's amazing to look at how kind of people keep reinventing the wheel over and over again. And, and when you have a large company, it's really easy to hide stuff that doesn't make sense. But if you are working with a very small team, then it's impossible to hide that. You know, if I need to spend half a day cleaning logs or, or figuring out why my systems kind of recycling every hour because there's a high user load, then I'm not spending my time actually delivering value. I'm just cleaning up after myself. And um, in all honesty, I mean, Amazon and, and Google and uh, kind of Microsoft's part with Azure, they have people who do sysadmin for living and, and they do that much, 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 much better than people who are even paid to do that in large organizations. Because that's their bread and butter. If you have a bank, your bread and butter is not system admin. Your bread and butter is moving money and, and kind of fleecing customers. But the, the, if you look at the cloud providers, their key thing, their key value add is being amazingly, amazingly good at kind of managing and, and monitoring systems. And the fact that we can pay them to do that for us um, is wonderful. I think lots of people try to compare the cost of running in a serverless way to owning your own server, and they just look at, oh, you know, I could buy a server for a thousand bucks, or I could get a kind of a instance on <clears throat> um, DigitalOcean for five bucks a month. Well, yes, you can, but, you know, how, how much is your time worth the next time when you need to patch up the database or figure out how to cluster and scale processes? as opposed to you being able to develop something else. I think, you know, even even for employees, like developer time is the most expensive thing now with software. It's not hardware. It's not the cost of operations. Very, very few products fail on, on cost because um, the, the running cost is too high, but lots of products fail because they are too late or what they've developed is wrong. Oh, yes, completely. I think a hard thing that I have run into when talking to just talking to people or there's an extra level of understanding of serverless of, you know, a lot of people ask, well, if it's not cheap or say like if it's not cheaper, I don't really want to do it or like what's the true cost of what it's going to be. And, you know, a lot of the times I think the people who we've seen use it the best. They're actually going to be spending more money now that they have a serverless system, but they're able, but their productivity is like a hundred X because they're just doing more and they're spending more on testing or creating better products. It's, it's money actually going into something that is just more valuable to the, to the entire business, to the system, to the sort of the end goal or the user experience rather than putting it into this void of infrastructure that isn't, that's only really costing, making them uh, have more headaches at the end of the day rather than improving their business. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the cost is an interesting factor there because really uh, with, with serverless, you kind of pay for different things. You pay for your application being busy. And then if you can engineer the application in a way that it's not busy, then it's, it's a massive win. So I think um, serverless uh, is actually the, the first time I've seen uh, a hosting billing model reward good architecture. What I mean by that is very often, you know, people teach good design and good architecture as uh, low uh, coupling, high cohesion, relatively independent things that you can kind of fit in your head and they don't have lots of side effects. Um, but 
where people were hosting stuff um, from, you know, forever up until a few years ago, the deployment cost, the deployment architecture billing model starts to prevent you from actually doing that at runtime. We have modules that are isolated at design time and development time, but when you run them, people tend to batch things up and put them on machines. I remember when when I was um, still working with um, kind of large companies on software development as an employee, um, you know, th- th- these people back then would get some immortal storage that was never supposed to die, that would cost more than a house, and they'd put, uh, you know, two instances on it that had top-of-the-range processors back then, had uh, redundant cooling, redundant power supply, had everything redundant in them, and they, they were never supposed to die, but... You know, one of them could even go down. The problem is once you have a setup like that, everything has to go there. And things can interact with with other things and you get a a stupid problem in one of your modules, basically taking out all the processors there or being, uh, you know, taking out the disk space or causing other runtime issues where it starts affecting other things as well. Um, I, I remember, you know, 15 years ago, we were troubleshooting uh, memory leakages in strings in the ASP 2.0 hosting environment on on the um, IIS because with such a heavy load, you get memory management of one web page starting to mess up everything else that's running on these immortal machines. And I think the problem there was... If you have reserved capacity, as in, you know, those two immortal machines or 20 virtual machines or some, you know, dinos you rented on, on Heroku or uh, DigitalOcean, basically everything goes there. You want to keep them busy. Um, one of the things we had with MindMap um, a while back is on the old architecture, we had uh, different format converters. People do mind maps and then they want to convert it into PDF or an image or even, you know, Markdown, which I built for myself. Um, and PDF was the busiest one because people would need PDF to print. They like PDFs for different things. Um, and PDF is is a memory hog because we used Ghost Script. So um, we also had something like the SVG exporter that requires almost no memory because it's just a text file dump or the Markdown exporter. But we wouldn't like it would be silly to get uh separate virtual machines for uh you know enough for the pdf and then a couple for the svg a couple for the png we'd have to run it on i don't know 200 different virtual machines where really five or six running together and sharing capacity were perfectly well for what we needed to do so of course we did that to save money and you know, we, we, we saved money on hosting costs like that. But then I had a really stupid bug where um, the SVG exporter did not clean up the temp space correctly. And um, it f- filled up the temp space on uh, one of the kind of exporter VMs. And then the other exporter VM kind of started being busier and it filled up the temp space on that one as well. And... Um, kind of Linux starts misbehaving really badly when you fill up the temp space. So it was just a domino effect. A really stupid bug took out uh, all the exporters we had. And it was a stupid bug in something that is not even used that often. Um, and the um, with Lambda and, and with kind of pay, pay per execution or pay per request, not pay per uh, reserved capacity, there really is no benefit from bundling all of these things together. In fact, there's a benefit from unbundling them because if you have one module that's a memory hog like the PDF and one module that doesn't really need a lot of memory like SVG, keeping them separate makes SVG processing cheaper. Putting them together, um, you would have to pay for the higher kind of memory capacity even when you don't need it. So I think in, in that perspective, yes, you know, serverless... Serverless prices different things. I, I kind of whenever people ask me about the cost of serverless, I try to tell them that 
you pay for different things. And you can make it, you absolutely can make it cheaper than container-hosted reserved capacity because in a lot of environments, people have to over-reserve capacity because um, the um, time to recover is, is, is slow. And uh, you have to think about, well, how do I warm up the caches? How do I bring up all these things? So usually they kind of have much, much more capacity than they need just because the peak might increase, the, the peak might come and, and they need this load. So very often people pay for reserve capacity that they never ever use with uh, pay per execution. That's Amazon's problem or Google's problem or, or Microsoft's problem, not yours. I mean, I had this morning, one of the tools I built, um, somebody published a uh, video on YouTube demonstrating how to use the tool in schools and for, for whatever insane reason, it became popular in Russia. I had uh, a month's worth of activity on the site in six hours this morning. And because it's all auto-scaling, it's all kind of managed and increases on demand, um, I didn't even have to do anything about it. It was just funny watching the graph kind of explode where um, I know I'll have to pay more for that peak and that's perfectly fine. I, I got good business value out of that. But having that just, you know, just in case somebody publishes a YouTube video so we can auto-scale and, and reserve capacity is, is a way to wonderfully waste money. So, um, yes, there are kind of, you know, of course, better ways to auto-scale today but I, I think comparing it to having a dedicated machine or dedicated EC2 instances is wrong because as soon as you have a dedicated instance, you're going to put lots and lots of stuff onto it. And then it becomes really difficult to know what actually costs what. With um, breaking it up into different things, what becomes possible is actually knowing how much money a particular function of your system makes or loses. And does it participate in a critical flow or not? So you can make much better, my experience at least, is that we were able to make much better optimization decisions. Um, with MindMap, we kind of have a nice comparison point because it was running on, on um, a hosted environment, uh, a container host environment in 2016. In 2017, it was running on Lambda. Um, we um, added about 50% uh, of active users during that year, and our usage costs for hosting dropped for about 50%. So all in all, taken into consideration, my guess is that migrating to Lambda and re-engineering the system to work in that way, we actually saved about two-thirds of our operating costs. And... I know there was a research, I can dig up the link for that, uh, and, and so you can share it later with your listeners, where um, IDC, I think, uh, ran a analysis of early um, serverless adopters, and uh, their conclusion is that in average, people save um, between kind of, I think, 50 and 70, I'll, I'll dig up the actual numbers, I don't know it off the top of my head, um, of, of operating costs. So that's kind of consistent with what we did, but one of their conclusions is also that people become almost twice as effective in terms of delivering new features to, to the market. And this time to, time to market is, I think, absolutely the, the winning thing for me in serverless, not the cost. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, in today's global comp competitive world, being able to, you know, launch something and get it in front of people, get that feedback and then iterate off of it makes serverless just that much more uh, beneficial. And, you know, I think you've, I think you've sort of touched on this, this point in giving just such a comprehensive understanding and overview of a lot of the successes serverless has brought uh, MindMup and some of your other projects. And that is, the nature of serverless, does it tend towards um, being a tool set that works well with an agile methodology? Or is it just sort of everything about serverless is more efficient with the way it reduces operational expenses, reduces time to market, and that is what sort of uh, is most beneficial? Or does it sort of pair easily with 
these not just legacy, I wouldn't say replacing legacy technology systems, but sort of legacy like management and then productivity systems? So I, I, that's an interesting question. I've never really thought about it that way. Um, I, I think these two things are relatively orthogonal. I think uh, being able to develop faster um, and being able to deploy faster or, or not manage faster to things that you know can help separately. I think um, serverless is um, like a liberating structure, is something that removes the shackles of having to think about a massive big bang deployment and, and massive big bang design uh, and how everything interacts with everything else is, is definitely helpful because you can deal with smaller concerns, you can solve smaller problems in a sense. I, I still see a lot of people uh, bring up their entire stack just because they can with a single massive template. And although that's wonderful as a exercise, I think if you have to do everything at once and you have to deploy all your other functions when you deploy a single function, you've kind of lost a bit of the benefit of the serverless idea. But... Um, I think that comes back not necessarily to Agile, but it comes back to designing systems to work in an asynchronous way and to design systems to work well in a highly distributed way. I think one of the key problems that, at least my observations people find when they start migrating to Lambda, is all of a the sudden they realize that they're designing a highly distributed transaction processing system. And that's a totally different way of thinking from working with a monolithic architecture or working with in-process communication. And um, I think w one of the things that kind of drew me to Lambda is that I actually kind of enjoyed making these systems for large banks um, w when I was still programming f for other people for money. Um, and I, I've learned the hard way kind of how to structure things. And I've, I've worked with some brilliant people that were really good at designing um, these high-throughput transaction processing systems. And I, I've learned a ton about kind of designing messaging protocols and, and things like that. And I think once you, once you kind of start thinking in that way, Lambda becomes really easy. I remember talking to somebody from... Um, the Erlang community at a conference in Berlin two years ago, and he was talking about how um, with Erlang, it's always kind of, you have to design the protocol well, but if you design the protocol well, then you can make as, as <clears throat> you can make all sorts of mistakes later. If you've not designed the protocol well, then nothing is going to save you. And when he's talking about the protocol, in Erlang, it's kind of a highly distributed system, and that's how do these components communicate with each other. And I think you have the same problem in Lambda, with Lambda and other serverless platforms, is how do all these kind of teeny tiny bits and pieces that run in parallel uh, talk to each other, and when they do talk, when do they talk to each other, and how um, do they collaborate in a way that they can be fairly independent? And if you can crack that, then this becomes incredibly powerful because then you can, you know, bring one function up, bring it down, multi-version it, deploy um, lots of different things next to it, where if you've designed all these things so they all have to go live at the same time and changing one bit in one of your Lambda functions requires you to change the same bit in 50 other functions, um, you're going to be in a world of pain. Oh, definitely, and that's um, that's really interesting that um, you know they're having such an emphasis on the on the protocol of everything, and that's something I certainly I certainly agree with. And you know, there's so much different levels of understanding. I think it's clear one can have when approaching like designing your serverless architecture. Or just, there's a lot of times um, our team has had to look at people are having a problem with their lambda functions, and they've just crammed their like their whole legacy business logic or functionality and just put it into a Lambda function, then they're confused about why it's not working. And so there's definitely a, like an educational lift that has to, that has to come uh, just to get to a point where one can, you know, 
be able to have uh, sort of like I'd say like a proper system running in serverless. But then I think there's an even greater level of sophistication that can happen. And as someone who has, you know, I'd say partially, you know, written the book, written, written a book on running serverless, how do you sort of think about, you know, communicating those different levels of understanding? Is there a way just to teach someone it right the first time and all of it is sort of baked in? Um, what's your approach for, you know, teaching someone about this? So I don't know. My approach to teaching people is give them lots of good examples of how things work. I think there's a, there's a lot of stuff people need to learn about the actual infrastructure and how the infrastructure works and, and not be bitten by some of the limitations that might, might not be that obvious. Um, and one way of you know, teaching people is if people, if, if they already know how to design distributed systems, kind of just teach them the infrastructure bits and pieces. But I think, um, what I try to do with the book is gradually give people, um, nuggets of how to design good distributed systems as well and how to design aggregates of data so that you don't have to, um, worry about synchronizing things in multiple places, how to figure out what you need to pass and where, and how to make sure that um, things work well in an eventually consistent world. I think one of the biggest kind of mind shifts there is that everything is eventually consistent. It's not uh, transactionally consistent. It's, you know, very difficult to know what's happening where when these things are magically running so much. So I think um, kind of probably if there is one approach, which I don't believe that there is just one approach, but if there is one approach where kind of it's good to start, maybe um, teach simple bits of kind of how to manipulate the architecture and the infrastructure and, and give people these um, challenges that will help them understand um, why it's important to um, design good protocols and help them design better protocols for their uh, application components. Certainly, certainly. And um, you've seen people be able to sort of design better systems out of the gate using that sort of methodology. I think so, yeah. I, I kind of, it, it's it's usually, you know, Different people have different things they need to learn. I, I've worked with people that um, were front-end web developers and, and never really built a server component, and we we kind of taught them how to do serverless um, at, at conferences in a couple of hours. But what they would learn is basically how to set a simple API to you know connect things to the backend, so they wouldn't have to bother anybody else for for something simple. Um, but if you look at somebody, you know, who, who is a more serious client of, um, kind of for architectural teaching, those would be people who've done, um, relatively serious systems in maybe larger organizations where they, they used to think in, um, architecting for reserved capacity. And I think helping them figure out how, how, you know, what happens when you no longer have to think about reserved capacity is really important and how, that scales and um, I've mentioned this um, toolkit that we built. Uh, it was actually something that came out of MindMap. It, it's called Claudia JS, and um, we released it as an evolution of shell scripts we effectively used to migrate MindMap uh, to uh, Lambda. Back then, there really were no easy easy to start deployment toolkits. Uh, now there are plenty. And um, I don't think people should get started with Cloudia.js anymore. I think uh, AWS SAM is, is um, kind of easier and better for many things, and, and there are simpler alternatives for other things. But um, with MindMap and migrating that, we actually just wanted to spin up a, a backend API for JavaScript on the client to call. And that was excruciatingly difficult with existing tools. Um, I remember our first Lambda function had something like 20 lines of um, JavaScript code for, for the code itself and about 200 lines of shell scripts to configure it. And um, 
I think if you look at the toolkits today, they're much cleaner. But when when um, we were doing interesting things with this um, uh, deployment toolkit, I got invited to lots of conferences to speak about it. And kind of while I was running workshops on, on these things um, all over the world, actually, uh, that was quite good. And um, I think kind of teaching people um, that approach, like stop thinking about reserved capacity, stop thinking about bundling things together, think about decomposing things and think about protocols. That That's where I think kind of the, the light bulb moment happens for most people. Absolutely. Those are, those are really good points. The... You know, stop thinking about the reserve capacity, thinking about protocols. Those are definitely essential when uh, thinking about a serverless environment. Uh, do you think that, you know, like the majority of people can still benefit from sort of hammering down those principles and learning about it more? Um, or And also, you know, what are you looking forward to continue to teach, teach more about serverless? Uh, you know, given the opportunity, definitely given, um, you know, once planes are able to fly around the world again yeah. easily. What are you looking forward to teaching? Um, I think kind of the, the uh, in terms of are these good things to learn in general, I think they are. I think the, the decomposition into smaller problems is something that software developers have to do every day on many, many different levels. And I think if you look at kind of the history of software development, it's basically us getting better and better at decomposing things and getting tools to work on smaller problems at a time. And um, that, that's why I mentioned it's um, lots of people kind of with serverless find themselves having to design these kind of distributed, basically, transaction processing systems. And for people that have done that already uh, beforehand, uh, serverless becomes a no-brainer. Um, and I think lots of different things about designing systems to work that way are just generally good. Um, I remember when I was learning about domain-driven design in, in 2004 or five, and, and looking at kind of anti-corruption layers and, and looking at how to design systems so that you encapsulate knowledge in uh, layers and layers of parts well, um, one of the things that kind of coexisted around that time was this whole idea of um, what Alistair Coburn uh, called hexagonal architecture or what Steve Freeman, Nat Price um, called, uh, what do they call it? They called it ports and adapters, I think. And the, the idea was how to design this highly distributed system. The idea applied really well to highly distributed systems uh, that I was working on at the time. And it was basically a way to structure the design so that you can test all these components well. And, you know, when it comes to serverless, one of the most common problems I hear from people is, oh, how do I, you know, do automated testing on this where I don't have no idea where it's running. I have no idea. It's all baked into the architecture and it becomes really difficult to do any kind of smaller tests on it, you have to do integrated end-to-end tests for everything. Well, you don't. If you know how to design the system well, then you can apply kind of hexagonal architecture ports and adapters that have been around for 20 years and just do that. And I think learning about those kind of solutions, even if you don't do Lambda, is good because they're generally good solutions to recurring problems we have in software. Um, and th th that's a, another thing I, I mentioned, I think, already. I think um, like this Lambda deployment model really rewards good design, but good design is good to know regardless of whether you're going to apply to Lambda or not. It's just that lots of people suffered from designing their app in a, in a really nice way and then having to basically deploy it on something that doesn't necessarily map to that. Um, where um, the whole deployment architecture with serverless is uh, loosely coupled. And if you can do highly coherent stuff and, and not put the whole kitchen sink into your Lambda function, as you mentioned, lots of people do, um, you can benefit greatly from it. So, um, yeah, that, that's, I think, there's not, there's very few things I think that are specific about Lambda um, that, um, are not generally applicable to designing good complex systems. And learning how to do 
good design is, is a generally useful skill. I think that's such a valuable perspective. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to people about what is the, like, what is the future of serverless or what does serverless need? I hear a lot of um, really a push for like more live debugging and live testing in order just to sort of see problems before they happen and being able to systematically test your architecture. Though I'm not sure if, you know, maybe the community at large is, is in general thinking of, is my system design the most optimal way for me to not have these problems in the first place. And I think, you know, I'm all about front loading, front loading your work and just having an elegant system in order to, uh, you know, it just makes life easier if everything is set up. I, I definitely value that perspective a lot. Absolutely. But I think that, you know, there is one more kind of Lambda specific thing to it or, or kind of several specific thing to it. And, and that goes back to kind of the idea that uh, this kind of Erlang guy had if you design the protocol between the components well, then the architecture itself is very, very forgiving to mistakes because you can, uh, if you've designed it to be kind of decoupled, you can easily decide, okay, I've made a mess with this one function. I'm just going to rewrite it from scratch. I'm going to throw it away and rewrite it from scratch. And, um, you know, you, you can make lots and lots of mistakes within the box as long as when the boxes are communicating with each other kind of is, is solid, then uh, it's very forgiving to mistakes and it's very forgiving to quick and dirty experiments. It's very forgiving to being able to try things out. For me, multi-versioning is, is an absolutely underrated uh, feature of Lambda. Lots of deployment toolkits are not uh, positioned to use multi-versioning well. They kind of tend to deploy whole um, sets of functions where one of the things that I think kind of we've done really well with Claudia and, and nobody tried to replicate later um, and, and something that's still missing is being able to say, look, I'm going to do a really stupid experiment with this stuff and I don't want to expose myself to too much risk. I will just create a teeny tiny new version of this function that is going to run for, uh, you know, my low-value customers or my customers in Portland or my customers in Europe or not Europe, something smaller or, and, and give it to a small, small kind of group of people and let it use that. that that's um, the fact that you can do multiple versions of a function that run concurrently and then compare them is, is amazing. The old one is still there whenever you need it. So it's really easy to just, you know, say, well, just go and invoke the old version. And, and that's wonderful. That's one of these aspects of not having to think about reserve uh, capacity anymore. And I think, for example, you have this one big enterprise customer who wants, they, they want something and they want it and they want it now. And what they want is completely at odds with what everybody else wants. And you have two options there. You have an option of, you know, developing stuff for these people and breaking it for everybody else if you release it to production, or you have an option of developing it for these people and then spending another six months consolidating it and making it work for everybody else before you deploy it to production. And what multi-versioning offers is option number three, is develop enough for these people, give it to them, but keep everybody else on the old version. So they get time to market, you start charging them more, uh, you prove that this was, you know, good, bad, whatever. Everybody else is unaffected by that. And then over time, you can bring up the functionality to kind of work correctly for everybody or consolidate it or improve performance or, or compliance or whatever it needs to do to make it globally globally useful. Or, you know, if, if there's such a big customer and um, uh, th th their stuff is completely taught with everybody else. Just keep their version running forever. It's making money and that's it. Um, we, we had, you know, on mind map, not on that level, but uh, a, a really similar kind of stupid thing. Um, we used to take uh, PayPal subscriptions a while back before uh, PayPal became hostile to us. So we decided not to take any new PayPal subscriptions, but there's still people who pay us legacy subscriptions with PayPal. And we were changing how the payments infrastructure works um, and, and started changing the um, uh, internals of it. And then when we started testing 
the new one, we realized that we completely broke the old PayPal flows. Now, this whole PayPal thing is, you know, legacy thing. People are still paying us, but we don't want to lose that money. We had the option of, okay, we are going to take this nice new clean architecture we've done and make a mess of it again because of PayPal, because of legacy stuff. Or, you know, what would be the other option normally is bite the bullet and stop taking money from the old subscriptions. Because we have this running in Lambda functions, we just made the decision, okay, why not root the PayPal messages to the old stuff? We're not adding new functionality. We're not adding any new subscriptions using PayPal. It can just run until it dies out using the old stuff. And three years later, people are still giving us money on PayPal because of that. That function is happily running. And we have a different version of our payment architecture that's for everybody else. And I think this this idea of um, being able to, you know, multi-version stuff and have multiple versions of the same thing running at the same time is incredibly, incredibly powerful. But in order to do that, again, the protocol between components must support the fact that everything else can, you know, receive a message from the PayPal thing or from this kind of new architecture. No, indeed. And I know, you know, I've listened to some of the things that you've talked about in the realm of like people versus computers and how people can make computers go crazy. And in in my job day to day, computers are making me go crazy. Uh, But really, it is probably my fault. Uh, That being said, do you think, you know, like these options that exist with the protocols with 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 the protocols and these multi versioning? do you think this makes it so maybe computers and humans are going to be able to get along a bit better? Um, or is there still a, a, like a significant aspect of building overconfident systems or building systems that aren't designed well? Are those really still, would you say, like the key problems that will prevent that from ever happening? I, I think um, kind of, gen- you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if 15 years from now we have this whole movement of, people migrating from this type of architecture to something else. And, and these things are cyclic. Um, jokingly, uh, we can talk about Lambda being, going back to, you know, mainframe computing and, and timeshare on mainframe computing, because that, that's what it is. It's just that mainframe computing was so stupidly expensive uh, 40, 30 years ago. And then you had this whole, you know, PC revolution and, and client-server architectures and three-tier architectures. And now we're going back to another cycle of, of the whole thing. And I think um, as bottlenecks move around in our industry, things are cyclic, probably. Um, so hopefully um, we start getting better and better tools. So we, we work on a higher level of abstraction. We're getting um, perhaps some... Um, more time to deal with more interesting problems. I think this whole infrastructure and demand uh, aspect is really interesting. I have um, a friend whose daughter is at the university now, and she's doing some project on on her own um, and needed a bit of advice uh, around how to uh, read data from a server so it's dynamic. And... Um, the friend recommended she talks to me and, and we started talking and I kind of start explaining how I would do that stuff. And then she tells me, well, I, I don't know how to fit this into kind of my app. Can I show you what I've done? And shows me this wonderful thing she's done on her own in a couple of hours where with Firebase and Xcode and just drawing these screens, she put together like 90% of an app without even thinking about what's an API, what's HTTPS, what is a database. And, and you know, now you start, um, I think, um, although, of course, you can do stupid things with that, I, I think it's incredibly powerful what people will be able to do with better tooling. And, and Lambda and serverless are just kind of another generation of tooling that we have to play with this. Uh, with this. So hopefully, you know, people spend less time fighting the infrastructure and actually solving interesting business problems. Because at the point where, you know, you can get 90% there without even learning what HTTPS is, um, it becomes incredibly powerful, really. Um, it, it becomes sad at the same time because, you know, I enjoy um, knowing how things work. 
But um, if you look at this stuff, you know, you can deploy a bunch of functions into Lambda. You can invoke them in many different ways. And you don't have to worry about clusters. You don't have to worry about uh, um, failovers. You don't have to worry about monitoring. You don't have to worry about scaling. And I think, you know, it is kind of similar in that regard to this whole new generation of kids being able to just take Xcode, take Firebase and or Amplify and knock up an app. I think people will be able to knock up much more powerful apps using Lambda now, you know, w- whether they're going to be successful or not, that's a totally different question. But I, I think it's a liberating thing. And I, I think a huge amount of complexity that typically causes problems, kind of failovers, um, message replays, um, monitoring, observing, and things like that, and, and, and renting that from Amazon or Google or, or Microsoft, lets people deal with problems on a higher level and hopefully lets them deal more with kind of making their customers happy and making their customers fight computers less. So my hope is, you know, in response to your question, that this is another step in um, having to, you know, worry about fewer things when you're designing your app so you can actually spend more time solving the problems that you actually wanted to solve in a better way. Yeah, I don't think I could have said it better myself in that way. I think, you know, that's the ultimate aspiration. And I think it's, I'd say, a goal that feel serverless is able to is, is able to accomplish. Uh, and especially if you give it enough time to sort of create those, like those testable, repeatable patterns for your clients and being able to sort of create a really good functioning architecture once and then having that knowledge and being able to share it. Um, I really loved what you said earlier about, you know, a teaching methodology is like showing really, really good examples. And I think that's one of the one of the most practically grounded ways that we can sort of share the knowledge and the successes in serverless. But also, I'd say, you know, in general, from solutions to any problems, I can definitely relate to, you know, being being a problem solver, being interested in solving really, really specific problems. One of the one of the you know, near end things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I'd recently seen like on your blog, you had published some expanded findings on the topic of specification from example. And I was wondering what was like, what were some of your findings from that uh, a little bit about that methodology? Because I think it was very, very, you know, insightful for me just hmm. go, uh, when I was going over it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So speak by example is um, uh, a passion of mine for, a, it's been a passion of mine for a long time. I think, um, it's by far the most powerful way of getting business people and tech people to get into a shared understanding of what they want to get. And I've been working in that area for a long time now. I wrote several books about that. And um, one of the books that I wrote actually came out 10 years ago. And I, I kind of, as a retrospective on that, that's kind of the specification by example book um, and even that was actually my third book on the topic. People very often don't know I wrote books before that because that was the first one that was really popular. And um, we did, a, my colleagues and I ran a relatively large survey um, about what's changed in the 10 years since the book came out. And I think one of the things that has changed for better or worse, I, I'm not really sure if it's better or worse, is um, out of, a multitude of formats, how people captured this information. Um, we ended up with a clear winner. Um, and that's kind of the whole given when then way of capturing stuff. Now, I, I say for better or worse, because I think people have taken a, a too shallow approach to the methods very often. And they use given when then for automating tests. And that's something it was never, ever, ever kind of intended to do that way. And then they complain that the method doesn't work while not even trying to do it. And from one perspective, it's great because it lowered the bar for um, lots of people to try using this method. From another perspective, um, I, I see that as many more people try to use it, they've not even tried to use it the right way. And then they, they discard it. Um, one other thing that um, I, I was really um, positive positively surprised by um, was that about a third of people that we surveyed um, just got enough value from collaborative analysis and these kind of cross-functional specification workshops 
So they never ever ended up automating any of these things as tests, um, which is exactly kind of on the other end of the spectrum of people misusing it for testing. And I think that was quite encouraging because um, for a long time, we've been promoting the message in, in the community that it's the conversations that are really important, not the tests that come out of that. The tests that come out of that are a nice-to-have benefit. Um, and they are very, very beneficial, of course. Test automation is wonderfully useful if you do it the right way, but it can also be wonderfully hurtful if you do it the wrong way. Um, and the fact that you know lots of people are using this thing for um, communication, and I think more than half of the uh, surveyed participants said that they are doing these workshops in a cross-functional way. They have developers, testers, uh, business analysts or customer representatives together coming up with the specs. Um, I think that was a wonderful, encouraging message. That means that all the, all the work we've put in as a kind of a community and especially that was one of the goals of my consulting company when we started it to promote this thing and help people become better at it. That means we've, you know, we've kind of succeeded in that way. I think there's a whole challenge around a generation of people that think about that given when then is about test automation still um, that, that we need to educate. But um, I think we're moving, in a, we're moving in a good direction. It's good to see that um, it looks like overall either the field is moving into a more positive direction. Uh, I'm definitely interested to just sort of keeping in touch with that line of research as well as experimenting more and um, sort of with that methodology. If people, including myself, are interested in, you know, following with that or learning more about it or learning more about you, how would we, and some of the things that you, you do and you offer, how, what would you suggest that we do? My, my latest uh, project is called videopuppet.com. And for, for people in your audience, I think um, you are... One of the uh, people in your audience are one of the kind of key target markets for that. So I would um, kind of suggest people checking it out. It's it's allowing you to have version controlled uh, source code controlled uh, GitHub uh, CI built videos from source code and images and and a bunch of things. And the idea with that is. You can very easily create demos for your features and keep them in sync when your app changes or kind of create small explanations or tutorials or stuff like that. Um, that that's something that, um, you know, if people are interested in what I'm doing, I, I suggest checking that out first. The other way of looking at other things that I do is maybe look at the, at the running serverless book. Um, it's on Amazon. It's, you know, kind of... Uh, big online stores and, and in better physical stores as well, if people are not scared to go into physical stores anymore. And um, I, I don't blog as often as I did because I'm working on several products in parallel now. But um, I do have a blog that's kind of active every few months and I've been blogging for, I think, 15 years now or something like that. So there's, there's a lot of material there about the topics we talked about, about good architectural design, about uh, testing in a distributed world, about serverless and, and kind of methodologies and things like that. So that's on, on goiko.net. Uh, it's goiko with a J. Uh, so th that would be kind of the three things I'd recommend people check out. Fantastic. I'll be sure we get that in the show notes and make it easy for all of our viewers to check out. And I definitely would recommend to all of the listeners of Talking Serverless to absolutely, you know, keep Goiko in top of mind for these sort of things. Uh, before we wrap up, are there, is there anything else you would like to you'd like to say or like to add? I know we're getting close to our time and I want to want to respect our allotment. No, Phil, I, the only thing I'm, I'm kind of really excited about is uh, this uh, whole idea of permanent storage for Lambda functions. I don't know if you've looked into that. Um, it's something I've just started tinkering with. And um, th th that's why one of the things I was mentioning is, you know, things are cyclic and, and tend to end up repeating themselves. And we, we're getting into a situation where for the last four years, when you heard people explain Lambda, you would hear them talk about, like, you can't share anything between Lambda functions. It's all isolated. It's all transient. 
And, you know, you have to design your stuff in a way where you don't really expect uh, sharing between running Lambda, Lambda functions, where now with permanent storage and EFS storage, you can actually have multiple Lambda functions collaborating on a file system at the same time, concurrently, which I think opens up a totally new set of use cases for Lambda and um, changes quite significantly the profile of how people are going to teach Lambda and what they can do, because you can now start approaching Lambda as um, a more kind of traditional interconnected server as well. Uh, whether that's good or not, I have no idea. I just started tinkering with that. Um, and I think that opens up some really new interesting use cases. So if people um, have heard about serverless on your podcast before, as I assume they have, and they don't know about um, this whole EFS on Lambda thing, I would recommend they check it out because that's something that's kind of um, occupying my brain quite a lot these days. No, fantastic. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, no, I'm interested. I don't think I've seen any... Um, you know, projects sort of shared around in my network that have been using it um, or have tinkered with anything um, and shared it yet. So I'm interested to see just sort of what that happens. And I know, you know, we have, we do a lot of like articles and training articles and training courses. And so I don't think we've, you know, rolled anything out on that yet. So that could be, uh, yeah, that could be fun to have some of our education team play around with that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast. Um, it was a lovely chat. Yeah, you're very, very welcome, Goiko. And um, and thank you, serverless uh, talking serverless listeners, for listening to us today. And I am looking forward to the next podcast we share together.